0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host, as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich.
2: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The category is Civil War Andersons, and the correct Jeopardy questions in increasing order of obscurity are, Who was Fort Sumter's Major Robert Anderson? Where was Prison Camp Andersonville? Who was Guerrilla Bloody Bill Anderson? Who was Army of Northern Virginia General Dick Anderson? And for $1,000 and the Daily Double, who was Robert Anderson's brother Charles, the Colonel and Lieutenant Governor of Ohio, who gave the long forgotten third speech at Gettysburg on November 19, 1863? The answer, well, we'll find out the Civil War story of Charles Anderson tonight. From David Dixon, author of The Lost Gettysburg Address, on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app. If you have an iPhone, Android or BlackBerry, the Voice America interactive radio player powered by Aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android or BlackBerry powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World or Android Market.
1: o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from our usual haunt on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Looking out the window of Office A320 and seeing the deserted, dark courtyard of the Brewster Building, but not speaking for East Carolina University or any other institution or authority, just myself, as our guests will do likewise, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio, just talking for ourselves. Well, last time I was at this window uh, a couple weeks ago, I had to do a show from home last week, we were was pointing out the apparent ending of the world, uh, that did not happen, although yesterday we had a, a storm that raced up the east coast of the United States and the heart of it passed right over Greenville on the way up to the media centers of New York and Boston and dumped a huge amount of rain on us, but it was over in 20 minutes, no, no serious harm done. Uh, well. Tonight I want to say hello to uh, my friends at the Lifelong Learning Program here in Greenville, part of, uh, sponsored by East Carolina University, a chance for people to learn something about a subject that interests them. Often uh, the members of the group are retired. They have the time, the curiosity to explore and open their minds, and so uh, I've been agreed to do a program on Abraham Lincoln with the LLP folks. We had our first meeting today. It was very interesting. A lot of good questions from the people attending, a lot of good discussion. I'm looking forward to two more weeks of it. Uh, I'm just happy they let me continue after I opened with the uh, question. uh, Show of hands here, how many of you actually knew Abraham Lincoln? Uh, That was really not the right thing to say in retrospect but I I couldn't resist it. Uh, The the joke will be on me. I'm not that many, many, many years away from retirement, so uh, it'll come around to haunt me one day. Anyway, uh, the people attending were great. We had some wonderful discussion. Look forward to lots more of it uh, next week and the week after. Also, while we're chatting, a reminder uh, one more time that if you think of it, listeners, go to earbud.fm which is a site sponsored by National Public Radio. Uh, NPR has suddenly discovered the world of podcasting and uh, all the great stuff that is on podcasts. And with the, uh, just as uh, Marx said, capitalists will sell the rope that will be used to hang them at the revolution. Uh, NPR is busy promoting the podcasts that will render their medium obsolete one day. But in the meantime, uh, go ahead and check out earbud.fm because they're looking for people to tell them about interesting podcasts. And I thought, well, I'll do my civic duty and let them know about Civil War Talk Radio. But they have one rule. If you work for a podcast like this, you're not supposed to promote it yourself. You, the listener, however, could do so uh, if you want to help others find out about this and maybe come up with good ideas for future shows, please go to that website. Find out where you can do it. And uh, if you have something nice to say about the show, if not, then then, then don't. Um, it's important to say nice things. I always believe in this afternoon's student newspaper, uh, the East Carolinian, TEC, there was a guest column by another professor who was ranting against political correctness using a bunch of 30-year-old obsolete examples taken from Alan Bloom that are no longer relevant. Has anyone ever really called a janitor a sanitation engineer in real life? Uh, not that I know of, but uh, it was, uh, you know, the rule is don't say anything, as my mother taught me, if, if you don't have something nice to say about someone, you really shouldn't say anything, but, uh, but he was arguing that that's political correctness. You should say whatever you think, essentially. So I wrote uh, an extremely vulgar and nasty response uh, telling, saying exactly what I thought of him and then had the good sense uh, not to hit the send button. There's that moment of time. Uh, I've heard someone describe it as the oh-no second, the, the time that elapses between the moment you hit the send button and then think, uh, oh, no, shouldn't have done that. So I kept that one to myself, but I'm just telling you today, uh, it's it's irritating when people are intellectually lazy uh, and and just keep on with obsolete complaints. Well, let's move on, not into the uh, obsolete past, but into the future of Civil War Talk Radio. Good shows coming up, Uh, a new batch of updates has been sent forth to Mark Gaffney, who keeps us all informed at www.impedimentsofwar.org next week the 23rd of february we'll have douglas l wilson with us he's an old friend of the show Uh, he and rodney davis are the masterminds of the lincoln studies center at knox college uh, in galesburg illinois and they have just produced uh, another landmark work Uh, you may well be familiar with their uh, uh, collection of of william herndon's writings uh, uh, Herndon's Informants, which is the single, by far, single most important published source on the early life of Abraham Lincoln. They -hmm. have now produced a work called Herndon on Lincoln, which consists of Herndon's, uh, William Herndon, Lincoln's longtime log partner, wrote many letters after Lincoln's death as he tried to write a biography of Lincoln. And he corresponded with people and told them things that he didn't tell anyone else that never showed up in the biography. And Doug and Rod have gone through this mountain of correspondence and have published a really important volume, Herndon on Lincoln, things we didn't know about Abraham Lincoln that his close uh, professional colleague tells us. So we'll hear about that. Uh, Doug Wilson will be the guest next week. The following week, Thomas Kernan. Uh, he has Purdue, he's the author of a, a doctoral dissertation, Sounding the Mystic Chords of Memory, Musical Memorials for Abraham Lincoln, 1865 through 2009. And Professor Kernan teaches at Roosevelt University in Chicago. Uh, he was written up recently in the Chicago Tribune, a fan of the show, uh, uh, tipped me off to this, and I immediately got in touch with him said, come talk to us about what what people have said in music about Abraham Lincoln so that'll be on March 2nd March 9th no show it's spring break I will be sipping beverages from a icy tall glass with an umbrella in it probably not alcoholic unless uh, uh, Emily's back is feeling better and she can stop taking the necessary uh, painkillers that have caused us both to curtail our alcohol consumption in the meantime uh, but that's spring break week. If not, that'll just be, uh, I don't know what kind of misbehavior I'll engage in. Uh, March 16th, we'll be back. Uh, Chuck Veit, V-E-I-T, another old friend of the show, returns with a new book, C-Minor. Not not like the chord, uh, C-Minor, but S-E-A-M-I-N-E-R. Subtitled, Major E.B. Hunt's Civil War Rocket Torpedo, 1862-1863. A technological story that has never been told. And then on March 23rd, Martha Hodes uh, joins us for her discussion of her book, Mourning Lincoln, uh, about the death of Abraham Lincoln. So a lot of Lincoln stuff coming up as we are in the month of Lincoln's birthday. And we'll do that for a few weeks. We'll also have more military things in the future as well. You can follow it all at impedimentsofwar.org. Two more quick uh, comments coming up May 21 through 29. This hallowed ground tour of Civil War battle sites sponsored uh, and produced by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Always an interesting way to learn about the Civil War. If you're interested, contact Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours and they will give you the information you need another historical tour and I'm not at all affiliated with this one unlike the the Ambrose tours I'll be the the historian guide on that tour on March 11th and 12th Dave Powell's annual Chickamauga tour uh, sets sail he does this every year uh, Dave's been on the show a number of times he is the Mr. Chickamauga at this point he might say there's others uh who've earned that title but he he's Certainly, uh, if not Mr. Chickamauga, he is Mr. Congeniality uh, in the Chickamauga Sweepstakes pageant. Uh, Definitely, you don't want to miss, if you can arrange it at all, going on Dave Powell's Chickamauga tour. Uh, It's March 11th and 12th, and you can learn about it at the uh, website Chickamauga Blog, B L O G, that's all one word, dot wordpress dot com. Or just Google Dave Powell and Chickamauga. You'll learn about his books that way. Add the word tour, you'll find out how to get on board. He's got a bus full of people. There's still some space I see. So uh, that's a completely unsolicited plug for a really interesting trip that I would like to do someday, uh, school schedule permitting. Well, tonight we go back to uh, a topic. It's not about Abraham Lincoln. It's tangentially related in that We will touch on the Gettysburg Address, but it's about a person I didn't know anything about until this past week. Uh, Charles Anderson, served as Lieutenant Governor of Ohio at one point, spoke on November 19, 1863 at Gettysburg, but did a lot before that. A really intriguing person, and his story is told in the book The Lost Gettysburg Address by David T. Dixon, uh, Mr. Dixon, are you there? I am, Jerry. And welcome to the show.
3: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: I, I know you mentioned you're traveling on business and you're you're in between, I gather, uh, important meetings and, and appreciate you being able to make time for this. Um, really an interesting book. Uh, let's start with the, the introduction of the book in which you talk about how uh, – uh, how anybody knows about Charles Anderson, how this story uh, came to light after 150 years. Uh, uh, where did you find out about uh, Anderson, and how did you get, get into the story?
3: Yeah, Well, uh, Jerry, I, I happened upon Anderson quite by accident. I had been publishing a number of articles on, uh, on free blacks uh, in the Northeast, And, uh, Anderson gave quite an unusual speech in 1849, uh, where he proceeded to demolish the concept of, uh, white Anglo-Saxon supremacy. And there were very few white intellectuals at that time that were taking that position. So I, uh, I saw that I dropped it in my idea file and a couple of years later I came back to him and, uh, Googled him and found out about this uh, this lost speech, and so that's uh, where I became interested in in Anderson.
2: So you had a background in history before this. Um, what what? Well, tell us about that. How did you become interested in the Civil War and, and history generally?
3: Sure. Well, I uh, as you as you tangentially mentioned, I I've spent uh, thirty four years in marketing for Fortune five hundred companies and. Uh, uh, in my, in my 40s, I went back to school to get my master's with the idea that someday I would uh, pursue my, my first love, which is history full-time. So, so I, I did that. Uh, my interest in the Civil War is, is, uh, really comes about uh, through some unusual circumstances. My father uh, died at a relatively young age, and uh, I became the family historian of sorts. And when I started to look into his family history, I found a number of uh, Union sympathizers in in Civil War Georgia uh, and did some work on them and, and eventually turned that into a master's thesis uh, some 10 years later. So that's how I really got interested in the Civil War and, and, and Civil War Southern Union men in particular.
2: And Charles Anderson fits that definition then. He, he's uh, tell, tell us about his origins.
3: Sure. So, so Anderson was born in Kentucky in 1814. He was the uh, youngest son of a fellow by the name of Richard Clough Anderson, who was another one of these Andersons that not too many people have heard about. But um, he was quite an interesting figure in the uh, Revolutionary War himself. He was aide de Camp de Lafayette and served for the, uh, the balance of the war and ended up uh, ended up being one of the surveyors for the bounty lands out in Kentucky and Ohio. So, uh, Charles Anderson, his, like I said, his youngest son, was born uh, near Louisville, Kentucky, uh, raised on a slave plantation, uh, and like his brother, Robert Anderson, who you mentioned uh, in the introduction, Robert Anderson of Fort Sumter fame, uh, he owned slaves at one time. Uh, But because of his family history, he was uh, very much uh, committed to the Union cause. In fact, at one point he said the Union was his only true religion. So uh, he was a lawyer in his early years, but like many attorneys, was was drawn into politics and and had quite an interesting series of adventures uh, uh, in the years leading up to the war and, and during the war itself. He, uh, I'm interested in talking about those,
2: but what struck me reading about his early life, uh, uh, both in his case and his father's, is was the uh, sort of Forrest Gump nature of it. Uh, they seem <laughs> to know everybody. I mean, Lafayette shows up, Washington shows up, and then later Jefferson Davis is in and out, and Robert E. Lee and Andrew Jackson. I mean, was there anybody they didn't know?
3: It, that, was, that was really one of the crazy elements of this story. Uh, of course, when I found out about the speech, that was really the hook that that turned the idea at least in my mind from from a potential article into a book and uh, Like you said, when I started uh, doing the research, there was such an amazing wealth of uh, primary source material available, and the story uh, just kept getting richer and richer so I, I think it does point to to those those Circles in the early to mid nineteenth century in America where uh, where the the political circles were were small and people did know each other and and uh, you're right he he just happened to be in in a lot of places and and meet a lot of uh, very important people.
2: Well, we're going to take a short break. Talk some about some of those people that that, uh, Charles Anderson knew and his own adventures. Uh, We'll do that. We're talking today with David T. Dixon, author of The Lost Gettysburg Address. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming
1: live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
4: The bottom line in business talk.
1: Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: a lost Gettysburg Address. It's a book uh, that tells us about the person who gave the uh, little known third speech on November 19th, 1863, after Edward Everett and Abraham Lincoln. But much more than that, it's a, uh, a really bi- biography of this person, Charles Anderson. We talked a little bit in the first section about Anderson's uh, ancestry, uh, a revolutionary hero uh, for a father and uh and his politics and uh, david you mentioned that he was anti-slavery although coming from a slaveholding family and living in kentucky uh, so he and he was also uh, pro-union there was a, a book uh, not very long ago published uh, written by patrick lewis who was on the show called for slavery and union where he talks about kentucky slaveholders who supported the union because their view was that slavery's best hope was within the Union, not outside of it, and they thought secession was madness. So they they defended the Union, even in the interest of preserving slavery. That's not, uh, I gather, Anderson's motive for fighting for the Union.
3: No, I think Anderson's Anderson's motive for fighting for the Union was was, uh, strictly a love of the Union, uh, and And I think when you examine any uh, any person, especially the southerners of this period, I think their their views on on slavery are rather uh, rather complex and and nuanced. Uh, Anderson was certainly morally opposed to slavery, but not so morally opposed that he didn't uh, hold slaves himself at one point uh, I think his his he, he on many occasions stated that uh, that uh, being a conservative he really felt like the, that that uh, that the the institution of slavery while morally abhorrent uh, was uh, was the corrupt bargain if you will that that held the union together so uh, like many of his contemporaries i i believe that he felt that that slavery would eventually run its course and that it was better to, to, to let that happen than to, uh, than to indulge the passions of the abolitionists. He, he, was, he was certainly not an abolitionist, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but of course he was also a strong Union supporter.
2: So when the war begins, uh, he's in Texas. How, how did he get there and, and how did he get out?
3: <laughs> this was this was one of uh, one of several, in my opinion, poor decisions he made. In the, over the course of his life, <laughs> he actually he actually read a book, um, which which inspired him to to take a trip down to Texas. He was a lifelong asthmatic, and um, and so he became enamored with the idea of moving to Texas and actually moved there uh, in 1859. Uh, which turned out to be, of course, uh, terrible timing for him. So, he he settled in Texas uh, to pursue his lifelong dream, which was really to become a a, a gentleman farmer, a rancher, if you will. So, he uh, he plopped down in Texas, bought a large uh, bought a large estate there, and uh, quickly became one of the more prominent Union men uh, in San Antonio. There weren't that many there at the time. Uh, well, it's interesting. I think, like a lot of southern states, Jerry, uh, if you think, if you go back into Texas history, you find that uh, that uh, Sam Houston was was uh, elected governor over a secessionist incumbent uh, not too long before Lincoln's election. So, I, I think there were a sizable contingent of Union men in San Antonio and in Texas at that time. I'm not sure that that uh, many of them were as uh, committed, uh, uh, unconditional Unionists, you might call as as Anderson. So when Bush came to shove, of course, as they did all over the South, many of the Union men uh, went along with the Confederacy, but uh, this was certainly not uh, ever a consideration that uh, that Anderson made, despite the fact that he risked losing his, uh, his property, endangering his family, and, and and potentially losing his life in the process.
2: And while he's down there, you mentioned uh, you know, Southern Union men who finally decide they need to go with their state, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe the most famous case is Robert E. Lee, uh, and he's there too.
3: Yeah, it was uh, actually very surprising to me that uh, as, as far as I've read from Freeman's books and some of the other books on Robert E. Lee, apparently uh, apparently when he when Robert E. Lee Confided in Anderson that uh, if Virginia uh, seceded, that he would would go with his state. I believe that was probably the first uh, public indication that Lee made uh, in that conversation with Anderson that that indeed he would uh, he would do that. So, uh, so like you said, another Forrest Gump moment for uh, for Mr. Anderson
2: yeah he he it, 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 you point out that he makes some bad decisions so it, it really does copy that that movie in a curious way he's always mm-hmm. making the wrong choice and showing up somewhere where earth-shaking things are happening and he's meeting these important people in this case uh, Lee deciding what to do and he gets caught up in the uh, in, in David Twiggs and his uh, shenanigans or perhaps treason is a more direct word uh, Mm-hmm. as he surrenders the U S army in Texas and, and turns it over right. to the secessionists. So at this point, Anderson can't just get on a stagecoach and, and head back North. Uh, how does he get out?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, he, he makes a, a pretty inflammatory speech right after the election of Lincoln at, at a secessionist rally, which he was not on the agenda, uh, to be a speaker. So, uh, so he is a mark man. So, uh, the Confederacy, of course, passes uh, uh, an act which uh, which allows Union men in the South uh, ninety days to to essentially get out of town or be subject to uh, to arrest or worse. And he 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 dithers, for lack of a better term. He he is working with Houston and, and other Union leaders to try to. Come up with some last-ditch effort to avert uh, secession. So he probably overstayed. He certainly overstays his welcome. And then uh, what happens is they finally allow him to leave. He and his family get a day out of town, and then they're uh, arrested, brought back to San Antonio, and eventually Anderson is thrown in a Confederate military prison, while his family is allowed to uh, to leave and eventually make their way down to Brownsville and. Uh, and out of the country, or out of the state, excuse
2: me. It's one of those things that you, you see in literature. Um, it it reminds me in uh, uh, Herman Wouk's The Winds of War, or, mm-hmm. or for that matter, in, in, in Tolstoy's War and Peace, families get caught up in these world-shaking events, and they just won't move. They, just, they, they don't realize you need to get out of town now. Uh, things are going to get a lot worse. They pe- people caught up in these things can't seem to believe it. And here's a real life example, where he just can't make the decision to go until it's almost too late, uh, and, and he gets pulled back. Uh, right, endangering
3: well, his family in the process too, and and so that that sets up a chain of events, uh, a, a rather uh, crazy uh, escape plan with uh, with a bunch of colorful conspirators, and it's a uh, it's, it's quite the entertaining tale.
2: It, it, it is. is. I'll, I'll Readers will want to get a copy of this book. It is uh, The Lost Gettysburg Address. David T. Dixon is the author, uh, published by B-List History. Uh, and let me interrupt the flow of our story and ask you a little bit about that. B-List History is also your uh, your online project. Um, what, what does it mean, and, and what... Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about B-List history
3: Sure, well I, I, I took uh, I think uh, uh, a career risk here, a second career risk that probably a lot of uh, folks would not take in self-publishing this book uh, because I, I was really torn between publishing it with the university press and, uh, and, and publishing it with a trade press so I, I pursued the trade presses for, for some time with, with really no luck and uh, I really wanted to get that story out, and so I decided to, uh, to publish it under my own imprint. Uh, B-List History is, is really my concept, uh, and the, the mission is, is to bring some of these more obscure characters, like Charles Anderson, who you and, and many, many other people have never heard of, uh, despite mm-hmm. being experts on the Civil War, uh, so the idea is to to try to bring those uh, second or third tier uh, characters or B list characters as they would say in in show business uh, to the attention of uh, of a broader public so uh, that 's what i'm interested in doing and so that 's why I published the book in in that fashion uh, uh, that's
2: very interesting uh, because i 'm looking at looking at the uh, the scholarly apparatus as as we call it, to use the term of art. Uh, the endnotes, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're correctly formatted and they're, uh, they, they, they look like somebody who's, you know, had some professional training in, in history. Uh, right. A lot of people now do self-publish books. And I've interviewed some on, on this program. We've talked to some of them. Uh, sometimes it, it's, it, it's kind of touching that, you, you'll look at the notes of a book and the person has read a lot about the civil war and seen a lot of academic books mm-hmm. and sort of knows what notes are supposed to look like, but they've never actually been formally trained. And so the notes, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they right. don't give the information. Uh, yours on the other hand, you know, they, they, they pass muster, but you chose consciously not to go with an academic press, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I mean, you must have thought about it a while.
3: Uh, I did, I did, and and uh, and I probably acted contrary to some of my uh, friends in in the, in in the academic world's advice. I uh, I listened to one of your interviews with Ted Savis not too long That's ago, nice. and uh, and it certainly is is the case that there are so many self-published books out there that uh, who has the time to wade through the. Uh, all the chaff to get to the uh, uh, the quality work. So, uh, mm-hmm. but but I certainly did focus on hiring professionals in in every area of the book production process with with the uh, with the intention of having it look like a university press book. Um, so I appreciate that.
2: Uh, and and I'll tell the listeners it does look like one. Uh, in from there's a nice dust jacket the. It's it's not, uh, what do they call it, perfect bound, where the, everything's glued straight and then it falls apart the third week you own it. Um, it, it it's produced like a, a hardcover and like a real book. And uh, I, I suppose one reason why people might advise you not to do that within the field is uh, if you're trying to gain tenure somewhere, it would be professional uh, suicide to right. not do that. But if you have the advantage of having another you know having a day job or, or this is a, a second career where you're really interested in being a writer, not an academic, then you can go that route and maybe reach more people uh, but you have to compete with with the sort of self-published direct that is out there. Uh, it, it's an interesting question, and, and this is, your book is really a model of a Self-published book that competes with university press books. Uh, uh, so it, it, it's it, it, where the field is going. I have no idea where mm-hmm. academic publishing is going. Is I have no idea. But but your book sets uh, uh, an interesting model to follow for people who wanted to do that. Uh, before we take a break, let me ask another question uh, about uh, Charles Anderson. He makes his dramatic escape, uh, gets back to Ohio. And uh, uh, joins the war, uh, recruits a regiment, uh, serves, uh, gets involved in the disastrous uh, Richmond, Kentucky campaign of eighteen mm-hmm. August, eighteen sixty-two, uh, mm-hmm. and ends up actually. Uh, d- does he command the regiment, the Ninety-third Ohio, uh, as they go forward in the war?
3: Uh, Well, he he raises the regiment in Dayton, (laughs) Ohio, commands it uh, through the Battle of Stones River where he's wounded twice. And uh, due to his wounds and uh, contracting both typhoid and and then also having asthma, he was forced to resign uh, his commission in uh, February, I believe, of 1863. Uh, He's 48 years old at the time. So he's done. He he.
2: So he's served in the war. He has actually uh, fought, and mm-hmm. now he's back in Ohio, recovering. Uh, as you, I think you point out in the book, he's in a familiar position. He's on his back, <laughs> sick, injured, no prospects. Exactly. Not sure what to happen next. Uh, what what gets him out of that predicament?
3: Well, the governor of Ohio, David Todd, basically. Uh, uh, Drafts him uh, along with some other friends to uh, to join the the Union Party and be the lieutenant governor uh, nom- nominee uh, alongside John Bruff to uh, run against uh, Clement Landingham. And so the,
2: the Union Party is the the wartime version of the Republican Party uh, with with War Democrats added. Exactly. But but their opponent, uh, uh, listeners will recognize that name, Clement Blandingham, the uh, uh, notorious copperhead who, who gets arrested by, uh, by General Burnside, the luckless General Burnside of Fredericksburg fame, <laughs> and uh, uh, becomes a martyr for the, the anti-Lincoln cause. So we're set up here for the election, uh, the gubernatorial election in Ohio in 1863, uh, Valandingham, who I believe is exiled, uh, sent to the south and ends up in Canada, but he's still running for governor. Uh, That's correct. And, and on the other side, you've got John Bruff and uh, our subject tonight, Charles Anderson. What we'll do is we'll step away for another minute and come back and find out. Uh, it, it's no secret Bruff and Anderson win the election. What does he do next uh, to find that out? Come back and join us in just a minute. Talking tonight with David T. Dixon, author of The Lost Gettysburg Address. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with David T. Dixon, author of The Lost Gettysburg Address. It's the story of Charles Anderson uh, in 1863, the lieutenant governor of Ohio, uh, who would go on to give a third speech on November 19th, 1863, after the ones we all know uh, by Edward Everett and by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, David, I wanted to ask you a bit about the the Anderson records generally. You uh, start off the book talking a bit about the, the curious path that uh, the Anderson papers took in ending up in an archive. Could you share a little bit of that? Sure. Well, the
3: the Anderson family had moved uh, at uh, some point in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, out to the West, and uh, uh, his papers uh, had been stored in in various uh, residences for some time. And uh, what happened was they an anthropologist friend of mine was hiking in the wind river mountain range actually on a mountaineering ex expedition when he uh, befriended Charles Anderson's great, great grandson uh, who was quite elderly at the time and eventually asked him to, to look over uh, a number of uh, boxes of documents that he received uh, in the mail one day. And uh, included in those documents was just really a treasure trove of uh, speeches and uh, letters and all all different uh, types of ephemera. And uh, the Lost Gettysburg speech was actually uh, in one of those boxes. Uh, uh, Mr. Tolley, the anthropologist, donated it to the Ohio Historical Society even before he realized what, uh, what he had found. That's one of those things
2: where people uh, will occasionally say, uh, why? Why? Why bother writing new history, or why argue about interpreting history? You can't change history; it's all, it's all out there. Uh, well, in fact, we're always finding new stuff, and uh, in the most unlikely places. And here's a, here's a concrete example of that. So, in 1863, uh, Charles Anderson is elected lieutenant governor of Ohio, and uh, who? I, I, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was John Nance Garner, the vice president, who said there were two two young boys. One ran off to sea, and <laughs> one became vice president. Neither was ever heard All from right. again. Uh, you, you make the point. Lieutenant governor is a pretty meaningless and ceremonial job in many cases, uh, but Anderson makes uh, makes something of it. Uh, uh, how does he end up in Gettysburg?
3: Well the uh, the Ohio delegation which was the second largest delegation to attend the Gettysburg uh, dedication ceremony uh, decided that they would have a a rally uh, of sorts at the Presbyterian Church in the late afternoon following the ceremonies on the uh, on the platform at the cemetery. And so uh, Anderson being uh, Probably one of the most accomplished orators in, in the West at that time uh, was asked by, again, Governor David Todd to give the uh, uh, the speech at that particular rally, and uh, I make the argument in the book that, uh, that really you have to consider all three of these uh, speeches, Everett's speech, Anderson's speech, uh, and of course Lincoln's masterpiece as a sort of rhetorical ensemble if you will. So each each of those uh, speeches had a distinct purpose and I argue that uh, those those uh, purposes were not only to memorialize the dead soldiers but also they were expressly political purposes. So Everett basically his purpose was to educate. Uh, Lincoln's purpose in my opinion was to inspire and uh, Anderson's purpose was to uh, motivate or even agitate uh, the uh, the audience uh, back into a, vig- a vigorous prosecution of the war, something that uh, that Lincoln really or Lincoln or Everett really could not do in the context of uh, of uh, of the cemetery dedication.
2: right, they're constrained by by where they are. Lincoln certainly is is just supposed to make a few remarks and this is, they're dedicating the cemetery to the dead. I suppose it might be in poor taste. He could have given a, a, a fiery speech mm-hmm. to avenge these, these dead here, but it would be very un and uh, not something we right. would expect. But Anderson is under no such constraint, and it's not sure. on the battlefield itself, or rather not on, on the, the cemetery itself when he gives his speech.
3: Right, he gives his speech in the Presbyterian Church, and... Uh if you read the speech, it is it is a very provocative, fiery uh, address, and uh, he he is very much an, an independent, a political independent, and uh, he says a number of things in the speech that uh, probably Lincoln would not have agreed with 100%, but uh, as we know from Doris Kearns, Goodwin, and other folks, uh, Lincoln was a master at using... Uh, people like Anderson, who didn't necessarily and everett for that matter, who ran against him in eighteen sixty uh, he was a master at using those 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 type of folks uh, for his own purposes uh, and uh, and using political opponents to uh, to uh, further his own ag- political agenda do you think Lincoln had an idea what Anderson was going to say that evening i I don't have any direct evidence. Jerry, that that Lincoln had seen Anderson's speech. But, uh, of course, uh, uh, Lincoln's Lincoln's, uh, cabinet ordered Anderson's 1860 uh, Alamo speech printed. Uh, He had met uh, Anderson on numerous occasions. He sent him as an unofficial ambassador of sorts uh, to Britain in early 1862 so Lincoln knew Anderson quite well, uh, both personally and by reputation. So, it, 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 I, like I said, I don't have any direct evidence that there was collaboration there, but mm-hmm. I but uh, Lincoln knew Anderson well enough to uh, to have vetoed, I think, his his his, uh, his participation if he had uh, if he had wished to do so. So so he knew
2: what he was getting, and he was he was willing to to get that. How how was the speech received?
3: The speech was very well received. Uh, both Lincoln and Seward uh, congratulated Anderson on his uh, his effort, uh, but uh, and and certainly some there were some newspaper uh, union newspaper uh, reporters that that thought that Anderson's speech was perhaps the best speech of the day. However, Everett's speech took up so much uh, room in, in the union papers, having been distributed in advance, of course. Uh, that uh, it really left little room for uh, for Anderson's address, so that's that's where Anderson's address was pretty much lost to history for reasons that I don't understand. It was never printed. The Ohio delegation wanted it printed, but uh, it never was printed. So it basically just disappeared for 150 years.
2: So so it serves its purpose. You've got you uh, say the lengthy two-hour plus talk from Everett about what happened at the battle. You've got Lincoln's two-minute summary of what it all means, and then you've got this speech. How, how long did it take to give Anderson's speech? It took about 40 minutes. Okay, so it's a substantial talk, and he's he, he's, he's firing, up the, firing up the base, as we would say in an election year. He, he's getting people inspired to continue this fight. And he has, and he has these credentials. I mean, he's been an anti-slavery uh, speaker, uh, but he's from, you know, from a border state like Kentucky. Uh, now, after this, uh, you point out in 1864, he turns around and does not campaign for Abraham Lincoln.
3: That's right. Yeah, that's right. He makes a, a, a an interesting comment, which I'll paraphrase in a letter. He says that. Uh, that uh, Lincoln's uh, chances of being elected on an emancipation platform, uh, he has about as much of of a chance of doing that as he has a chance of uh, rowing up the Niagara chute uh, in a particularly frail birch bark canoe with a particularly frail uh, or weak feather for a paddle. So, So, no, he, he... he does not align with any political party in the eighteen sixty four election, but he certainly is not supporting uh, Lincoln.
2: And and so once again, he's a political maverick, which he's been really all his life. That's uh, correct. He, he has his chance. So he has his moment. Uh, he's there with Lincoln. Did, was he on? Was he with the the platform party at the cemetery when Lincoln gave his speech? Yes, or did yes, you, he was yeah okay he and so hes he, both on the platform so he's 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 a right up there he's he's part of the show gives the speech which Lincoln attends uh, in the evening that's a long day for Abraham Lincoln, but he but he's he participates in that and then the following year when he might have uh, been rewarded with uh maybe a political appointment or or some favor uh he chooses not to campaign uh and uh, from there, not not to spoil the ending, uh, readers will want to get this book for all the the good stuff before here. But uh, uh, it's kind of all downhill from from there, isn't it?
3: Well, in a sense, it is. It's certainly politically, I mean, his his he he pretty much alienates everyone. Uh, he gives he gives a very uh, incendiary speech uh, against uh, against the uh, giving the freed slaves the right to vote. Uh, and so, in his usual fashion, he's he's taken all of his uh, political stances based on conscience and not on, uh, not with with uh, real political considerations. And so, uh, so he alienates most of his uh, most of his uh, political friends. Never does get uh, one of the plum ambassadorships that he's uh, that he ends up seeking, uh, and feels he's he feels he's entitled to, uh, based on his support of the Union effort, and uh, moves to a quiet retirement in, in Kentucky and spends the last uh, 30 years of his life, really, uh, in in quiet retirement in Kentucky. And I found it interesting that he adopts this
2: position in early Reconstruction years against suffrage for the former slaves. Because mm-hmm. you know, as early as the 1840s, he's making these speeches against the notion of some some mythical superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race, which right. is not something that, that other anti-slavery speakers necessarily endorse. You get a lot of very racist, uh, paternalistic commentary. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, even Lincoln himself says if if the Negro has little, that's not an argument for taking that away from him. Just let him enjoy his little in peace. Uh, don't enslave uh, the, the Africans, but it does, But there's very few who want to treat them as equals. And here right. he is making this argument that, that, they, that there is no foundation for, for uh, racial superiority. So he's swimming against the tide there. And now four years later, when everything has moved and people have seen black soldiers in action and seen the end of slavery, now he's suddenly saying,
3: oh, wait a minute, uh, no, no vote for you. What? Well, I think I, I think his point is that, uh, and he makes it pretty clearly in 1849 when he argues against the the myth of Anglo-Saxon supremacy, is that the the slaves are victims of circumstance here, and they have been forced into this condition of ignorance. Uh, they are not really prepared to uh, to enjoy the benefits of full citizenship. They're not informed, and so. Whereas he he feels like they can, uh, there's no uh, physiological reason why they cannot uh, ascend to a, a higher plane, if you will. Uh, he certainly thinks it would be destabilizing to suddenly uh, uh, bestow the uh, the privilege of full citizenship on newly freed slaves, and uh, and in, in in a certain respect, I I think there there are some uh, some truth to that well it's not
2: uh you hear people making that argument uh sincerely and out of uh you know a a real belief uh based on on some some factual background then you also hear those contemporaries of his who make that argument and they'll continue to make that argument for another hundred hundred (laughs) and fifty years uh uh sure equality is great just not yet just just, just wait a <laughs> little you know the, and and uh, that argument is not entirely faded away today uh so it's hard to tell quite how to take him when he does that That's but true. he he gains credibility given that in 1849 he's arguing against uh the Anglo-Saxon myth well uh, in in 30 seconds uh, what's your next project
3: well, I'm I'm really focused in this career transition from uh from business person to historian. I'm really focused on building my platform here. So, I, I have a few things that are in the works, but I'm really not ready to uh, to launch uh into another project until I uh, until I establish some some credibility in the field. So, that's what I'm working on right now.
2: Well, listeners go to www.davidtdixon all one word dot com and you'll learn more about what david's working on you'll see links to the lost gettysburg address get a chance to read a little bit of it and uh, i I think you'll find it an interesting story you'll want to get a copy Uh, david it's been great talking to you thanks for being on the show well thanks so much jerry i've really enjoyed it and listeners thank you as always for listening to civil war talk radio